This audio presentation is brought to you by the Baptist Missionary Association Theological Seminary. The BMA Seminary provides accredited theological education for equipping God's people for Christ-centered service and leadership roles, with three online degrees available now. We are committed to the inerrancy and authority of Holy Scripture and to making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information about the BMA Seminary and its online degree programs, go to bmats.edu or call toll-free 800-259-5673. That's 800-259-5673. Amen. Well, good morning. We'll take Scripture and turn it to Matthew chapter 12, if you will. Matthew chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through verses 21, Matthew chapter 12. And the message this morning is entitled, Beholding Christ, Beholding Christ. And I just want to help you and myself as we come to Scripture to do the one thing that Scripture always points us to, and that is Christ. We want to behold Him. We want to see Him. And let me say to you that it is absolutely necessary that continually we come to a place where we're beholding and looking at and seeing Christ. In fact, if you look in verse 18, you see that word where it's spoken by the prophet Isaiah. It's quoted from Isaiah 42. And Matthew quotes this text. He's proving that Jesus is the promised one of the Old Testament. And that word behold is given there. That word means literally to see. See my servant, behold my servant. Or the word would also be, lo, my servant. That's where we get the title for today's message, Beholding, Seeing, Savoring Christ Jesus. You know, recently, I've been taking some men in my church through a book on Tuesdays. We meet at a local coffee house, and the book is by Alexander Strout, and it's called Biblical Eldership. And what I'm just trying to do is get our brothers, our men in the church, to understand what shepherding really involves. Uh, Some, because maybe that's where God is going to lead them. And others, I just want to build a consensus among the body. I want everyone to understand what shepherding is about. And yesterday, when we were meeting together, studying that very last chapter in the workbook, Alexander Strauss said this, he said, shepherding will take a spiritual and emotional toll on you like no other job. If you are a shepherd, a pastor, an elder, you understand that completely. Shepherding is an emotional job. And it takes an emotional toll, a spiritual toll. Unlike other jobs, you can't leave your shepherding at the office at 5 p.m., and walk away. I mean, you, you're taking it home. Unlike other jobs, there are times where people come against you in the ministry and it drains you emotionally. These are people that you've loved and that you've cared for, and yet they're in disagreement with you, and more importantly, they're dis- in disagreement maybe with God Himself and with the Scripture. It just is draining when you pastor. It's a glorious thing. But it certainly can also be extremely draining. I think we sometimes forget that, especially young people in the ministry. 
We think of ministry being so wonderful. We're going to have the opportunity to share the gospel with people and present the wonderful truths of God. And then when you get into a church, those are all very true aspects. But you also come to realize that there's going to be opposition against you. And the scripture actually says this. In fact, uh, let me just give you some, some quotes. 2 Timothy 3.12, um, Paul told young Timothy, who was a pastor, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now that goes for every believer, not just those who are called to ministry. But right there, that sets the foundation, doesn't it? If we're going to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, we're going to be persecuted and if you haven't figured this out yet, there's sheep among wolves and there's wolves among sheep in the church. Persecution most of the time does not come from outside of the church. I mean, I'll be honest with you, in 11 years of pastoring the same group of people, my biggest problems have not been from atheists, witches, and Muslims who were outside of my church doors. My biggest problems were people in the pews. I mean, I'm just being completely honest with you. The, the, the sleepless nights and the frustration and all this gray air right here was not with people on the outside. It was on issues on the inside in the pews. So we know that this verse is absolutely true. If we're going to live a godly life, for any believer there's going to be persecution. But then there's even a more pointed verse in 2 Timothy 2.24. It says, the Lord's servant. So he's talking specifically to those of us that would be servants of the Lord in ministry. The Lord's servant must be kind to everyone. Boy, that's a challenge, right? We have to be kind to everyone. Easier said than done, but by God's grace it is doable. But notice as well in 2 Timothy 2.24, patiently enduring evil. There it is again. So if we're going to live a godly life, we're going to be persecuted. And if we are God's servant, we are going to have to patiently endure evil things that will happen to us. And so I know from ministry and you know from ministry that we're going to constantly be emotionally and spiritually drained doing this work. And that's why we need to look to Jesus. That's why we need to behold Jesus that's why it is so crucial that we continually go to Him and see in Him the glorious truths of the gospel because as pastors and ministers and servants, we need spiritual uplifting maybe more than we realize. That's why we need to talk about beholding Jesus. And there's passages that speak of beholding Christ. Not just what we're going to look at here in Matthew chapter 12, but you go to Hebrews 12. My quiet time has been in the book of Hebrews for the last month. And I'm in chapter 11, but you get to chapter 12 after he talks about all these people who are examples of faith. He gets to the ultimate example of faith and he says, Look to Jesus who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And then right after he says, Look to Jesus, he says this in verse 3, Consider Him. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility from Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider Jesus. Look to Jesus, so that you will not grow weary or faint-hearted. I mean, it's all through the Scripture. We're told to look. We're told to behold Christ for our strength, for our endurance, for our edification, for our ability to do what God has called us to do in the ministry. Amen? Amen. So we want to look to Him today. 
And what better place to look to him than one of the most succinct passages of Old Testament prophecy in the Gospels. Perhaps even the New Testament. You have a large portion of Isaiah 42 where Matthew, who is writing his gospel, and the reason he's writing his gospel, he tells us why he's writing his gospel. It's there at the very end of Matthew. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. You want to know what the purpose of Matthew's gospel is? There it is. I think that's Matthew 27, 24. Behold, this is the one who is King of the Jews. Matthew writes everything to prove Jesus is the King. He's trying to prove His deity, prove His Messiahship, prove He is the one that has been prophesied, talked about, spoken of in the Old Testament. So what Matthew does here in chapter 12 is he goes to the Old Testament. Let me give you a little background on this passage where it sits. Matthew 10, Christ has commissioned His apostles to go out and start preaching. But in Matthew 11 and 12, a change starts taking place. In Matthew 11, people begin doubting that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. It starts with John the Baptist, who has sincere doubts, and who says, you know, I I thought you were the Messiah. I preached you were the Messiah, but I'm not exactly certain. Can you prove? Can you help my unbelief? Then it moves to the people who are hearing him preach in the cities and in the synagogues. And they're questioning, is he the Messiah? And in chapter 11, he comes to them and talks to them about what they went to see when they saw John the Baptist. He talks about the unrepentant cities, how it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom because Sodom did not have what these people have. And then in chapter 12, after people are starting to question Jesus, they start to extremely come against him. And in Matthew chapter 12... Jesus makes some astonishing claims. First of all, He says He is Lord of the Sabbath. Secondly, He says something greater than the temple has come. And He compares Himself with the temple and says He's greater. And basically, He says in Matthew chapter 12, I'm God. I'm everything the Old Testament has been pointing to. I am the temple. I am the tabernacle. I am the Sabbath. I am the one. One greater than David is here, who ate the showbread. One greater than the priest is here. I am the greater priest. I mean, he makes astonishing claims in Matthew 12. If you ever want to know where did Jesus claim to be God, you just go to Matthew 12 and he basically rips it all open. Hebrews is just a great pouring out of Matthew 12 if you, if you just want to think about it that way because Hebrews does the same thing. It just says he's greater than Moses. He's greater than the tabernacle. He's greater than the Sabbath. He's greater than uh, the priest. I mean, it just does basically what Jesus did in Matthew 12. And he says, I'm the Messiah. Well, that brings us to where we are in Matthew 12. He is claimed to be the Messiah and yet his own people are rejecting him. The very people that ought to be able to see this very clearly are rejecting Christ. So when we come to Matthew 12, 15, we see that rejection. There's two things I want to just focus on this morning in this text with you about beholding Christ. We need to behold Christ because of all these wonderful truths we've talked about. But the reason we need to behold Him is because it will encourage us. Two things I want you to say. I want you to see the man... Jesus Christ. And I do mean the man, Jesus Christ. 
His incarnation is really what's on display here. Not necessarily His divinity, but His incarnation. So I want you to see the preciousness of the man Christ. And then I want you to see the ministry of that man. So I want you to see the man and his ministry. Those are the two things we are going to be looking at together here in this text. Let's start start with the man, Jesus Christ, who he was. If you notice in verse 15, it starts, Jesus aware of this, that is, Gnosko, he knew, he had knowledge of, he withdrew from there. Well, what was he aware of? Well, that starts us out. He was aware of what was happening in verse 14. He had claimed to be the Sabbath. He had claimed to be the the high priest, essentially, uh, the temple. And that angered the Pharisees. Verse 14, the Pharisees went out and they conspired. That is, they deliberately consulted on how to get rid of him, how to destroy him. So here the Pharisees have heard what he has to say. They've seen his miracles. They've listened to his preaching. And their reaction is against him, conspiring against him, wanting to destroy him. Now Jesus is aware of this. Verse 15, he knows this. And what does he do with that knowledge? He doesn't confront them. It's not time for that. He doesn't come against them. Instead, he withdraws. And people begin following him naturally because he's been healing and doing these wonderful things already. And he continues to heal. But notice in verse 16, he orders or he rebukes the people, charges them not to make him known. That is, do not go out from here telling people who I am. It's almost like he's saying, you understand who I am, but these leaders do not. Now, why did he not want them to make him known? Well, let me just say quickly, he had already made himself known. It was already very clear in other portions of Matthew's gospel as well as the other gospels, Jesus had clearly said who he was. He had revealed who he was in chapter 12. He had talked about who he was in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Lord, Lord, in Matthew 5, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. I mean, you just read through this gospel and what you come to understand is Jesus was very clear about who he was. And if you had any qualms about that, just listen to John the Baptist. He was clear about who Jesus was. So Christ had already said, I am the Messiah. But why he's telling them now not to make himself known is because he is a servant. He is someone who is under the authority of his heavenly Father. And the time is not ripe yet for Christ to be exalted to the cross. Now Christ has a mission to do. And that mission is to die for sin. To make sacrifice for sin. And that mission is not yet ready. It's not the time. So what Jesus is telling them is, you do not need to go out from here and try to stir up a rebellion and stir up uh, anger against me because it's not my time. Don't make me known. And he withdraws. And the scripture says in verse 17, this is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. So everything that's happening, the rejection... And Christ is to fulfill what Isaiah said. And here's what I want you to see about the man, Jesus Christ. We get into that prophecy. Verse 18. Behold, look, see. What about the man, Jesus Christ? Well, the first thing we see about this man is he is the absolute only one that is acceptable to God the Father. He calls him my servant. 
Now that is not the original word that's normally used for servant. It's paideos, which means my child, or you could say my slave or my servant, with whom I have chosen. And that word chosen there, he is the one who is suitable. He is the one who is worthy. And think about what that verse is saying. Look at him. The first thing I want you to see about my son, my man, my servant, my child is he is worthy. He is suitable. Christ is the only one suitable to do the job the Father has to do. He's the only one worthy to do the job that the Father has to do. I don't know if you've ever wondered this, but maybe you've wondered why when Adam sinned, God did not just create a second Adam. Bruce Ware, theologian at Southern, has a great answer for this. He says, Christ couldn't just create a second Adam. Christ had to come. God Himself had to come. Because the payment was infinite. When you think about people paying for their sin in hell, it's eternal, infinite payment. And in the same way, to pay for our sin... If a man had to pay for it, he would have to infinitely pay what he cannot pay. That is why another person created perfectly could not have saved us. It had to be the person Christ. Christ is the only one worthy. He is the only one acceptable. He is the only one chosen, so to speak, suitable, who can do this job to save us from our sin. Because He's God and He's man. And the beautiful thing about Christ is when He came to earth... We know from Philippians 2 that he emptied himself, the kenosis. And that emptying of himself, he poured himself. He didn't pour part of himself. He poured all of himself into his humanity. Took on humanity, morphe. He morphed into human form and became this divine human being. And I think sometimes we we miss how important the humanity of Christ is to our salvation. We think about His divinity, and and many of you may even think this way. I I know I have. We think, well, Jesus was able to resist temptation because He was God. And He was able to do all these miraculous things because He was God. But I would submit to you, no, He was fully human when He was doing those things, but He was a human who was doing it in the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that same power that Christ had, while we're not Christ and we're not sinless and we're not perfect... It's available to us through Christ, through our union with Christ. He is the only one that is acceptable. Notice it goes on in verse 18. My beloved, agapitas, where we get agape. There is a divine love. Now that, that word agapitas, beloved, is applied to believers who are reconciled to God. They're judged worthy of eternal life. And the reason they're judged worthy of eternal life is because Christ was beloved and Christ was worthy and Christ is the one whom God was well pleased. He loved His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the man. Notice what else. I will put my spirit, my pneuma, on Him. Christ did everything that He did under the power of the Holy Spirit. He learned in His humanity... But he learned through the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. He was sinless as a human being through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was on him in his ministry, in his work, 
and in what He was doing. This is the man. This is Jesus Christ. This is who God has sent to save us. And when we look to that, that ought to encourage us. When we behold that, that it took a perfect man... And God sent that perfect man, and it was none other than Himself, in the being of Jesus Christ, that should encourage us. Something we could never do, God did. But today, there are so many people who are denying Christ. Maybe we're even guilty of this in our pulpits, accidentally. Maybe we're guilty of it in our ministry of denying Christ. You know, the Pharisees were denying Christ. They saw clearly, but they refused to see. And that's nothing new. I think about in the um, 1700s, 1800s, there were plenty of theories that talked about denying Christ. One particular you're probably familiar with, Albert Schweitzer, who wrote The Quest for the Historical Jesus. And in it, Schweitzer said that um, we really can't know Jesus from the Gospels. The Gospels are not reliable. We need the historical Jesus And so Schweitzer, who was a missionary to Africa of all places, did not believe ultimately in the Christ of Scripture. Isn't that bizarre? And when you tell Christians that, there are missionaries that don't believe in the deity of Christ in the Scripture. There are also pastors that don't believe that. You know, people find that odd. I remember when I was at Ole Miss, Oxford, Mississippi, the deep south, There was a man who was a deacon at First Baptist Church, Oxford. He was also a professor at the university. Dr. Nolan was his name. And he would tell his classes, I do not believe Jesus was the Messiah. I do not believe that he died a particular death on the cross. He was like hundreds of others who were zealots and and revolutionaries who died on a cross. And here was a man who was a deacon at the First Baptist Church of Oxford, Mississippi. You tell people this and they're amazed. That man, Nolan, would go out into the community at other local Baptist churches and he would preach on the absurdity of the virgin birth. And you know what he would tell our class? People come up to me from the pew and often say, I am so glad you said that. I didn't believe it either. You know, I think sometimes we assume that if people are in positions of ministry or authority that they just automatically buy into these scriptural teachings, but you can't assume that. That's why I'm saying for you, sometimes I think inadvertently we get into other things and we deny this Christ who is so important to our ministry. We forget to behold Him and talk about Him and lift Him up. We forget to hold to Him. We're we're swayed by other things that pull us in ministry. Be very careful. I'm not saying that we would go the route of Albert Schweitzer who denied the historical Jesus, but, you know, this is nothing new. The Pharisees denied Him. The people of Matthew's day were struggling with Him. And there are people in ministry and in the pew who today are struggling in the same way. But do not struggle with the man, Jesus Christ. Preach Him. Behold Him. Proclaim Him. He is the one God has chosen. He is the only one worthy. He is the only one who can accomplish what God wanted Him to do. Let's go on now to the ministry of Christ. That's just briefly there, a little bit about the man, Jesus Christ. Let's look at the ministry of Jesus Christ. Notice His ministry. After we're told about the servant, the child who's chosen, who's worthy... After we're told about the love that God has, the well-pleasing, the Spirit upon Him, we're told about the man. 
Then we're told about his ministry, his mission. This is something else we should always focus on, that because we have the man Jesus Christ, our ministry and our mission is his ministry and his mission. We're not in this alone as pastors and teachers and leaders. Notice his ministry. First of all, verse 19. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. That is, he will proclaim condemnation to the nations. That's the first thing that he'll do. He'll bring accusation. Now that sounds negative. It is. I mean, the accusation that he brings is judgment of sin. He brings holiness and truth and righteousness to the nations. Notice verse 19, though. He will not quarrel or cry aloud. The word quarrel there means he'll have a calm temper. And the word cry aloud is a word used to describe a person who bursts into a theater and interrupts a show and starts screaming. So when he gives you that impression of Jesus, he's trying to make you see that his ministry, he is going to preach justice. He is going to preach that justice to the nations. He's going to preach holiness to the nations. But the way he does it, he is not going to try to to manipulate people. He is not going to try to cajole people. He is not going to try to force people. His ministry is one of mercy and grace. So when he comes preaching, he comes preaching in a merciful, gracious way. He's not quarreling. He's not crying aloud. Nor will anyone hear his voice, that is the shouting, in the streets broadly. But instead, he comes specifically and graciously. And notice verse 20. This ministry that he comes doing, preaching, is a ministry so much of grace that this illustration is used by Isaiah and quoted by Matthew. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. What are both of those? It means, first of all, a bruised reed. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, has a whole book on this called The Bruised Reed. You can read it. Although I will say the Puritans sometimes, in my opinion, uh, you probably call this anathema, but they get their hermeneutics a little out of sync. Sometimes they pull verses from about everywhere to prove their point. Okay, But I do like the way Watson described this bruised reed. He said this. He said, it's a man in misery. I think that's true. You know, a reed is something that grows in the climate there. And if it was broken, it couldn't be used. And so Watson says that's kind of like a man who's broken in misery. Or a woman who's broken in misery. Christ says, I'm coming to bring justice. I'm coming to bring holiness. I'm coming to bring accusation to the nations who have given themselves over to sin. But my coming is going to be gracious and merciful and gentle. And what I have to say, even though it comes against humanity and against the world system it's gracious and if you're in misery i won't break you to pieces the word break there literally means to take like a clay pot and just smash it to pieces christ is not coming to do that he's coming to heal us he's coming to help us isn't that what he said in the sermon on the mount he said blessed are the poor in spirit i mean we have to be a bruised reed to want to come to christ We have to see our poverty of spirit. We have to see our brokenness. We have to see our neediness. If we can't see that, we do not see the need for Christ the Savior, right? 
I mean, instead, if we think that we're not a bruised reed, we see no need to come to Jesus as Savior. So let me just encourage you, in your ministry, preach to people this judgment on the nations. Do it in the same gracious way that Jesus did it. You're not quarreling, you're not cajoling, you're not manipulating people. You're helping those who are in misery and you're giving them the good news that Jesus, the man, came to do a ministry that will not break you but heal you. If you're bruised and broken, you are the one Christ has come for. Run to Jesus. Notice as well in verse 20, a smoldering wick he will not extinguish or quench. Smoldering wick meaning you've lost the fire. All that's left is the smoke after the candle has been put out. And that's all that you have left. You're not burning anymore. You're not excited anymore. You don't have the emotion any longer. But the good news is Christ takes even those people who are barely hanging on and He doesn't quench them and extinguish them. Instead, He's there to heal them. That's His ministry. Notice it goes on in verse 20, until he brings justice to victory. That would literally read, until he brings judgment to conquest or triumph. The word victory there, Nike, Nikos, where Nike gets their term, which means victory, triumph. See, all of you wearing those shoes, right? You are victorious. I guess that's what they want you to think. Um, Although I don't feel victorious when I wear them. Um, I wear them when I run, and I'm not victorious at all. I'm usually exhausted. But they want to give you that impression of triumph. Well, that's the word here. He's going to do this until he brings judgment to this place where he's conquered judgment. And judgment has turned into victory. Notice 21, and in his name, in his person, in his um, being... The Gentiles, the nations, are going to hope. The word hope there, flee for refuge. Wait for salvation with full confidence. I mean, this is the ministry Jesus has come to do. To bind up the brokenhearted. To heal those who are weak. To help those who are no longer burning. To give hope to the nations. That's His ministry. The man and his ministry. There it is in Isaiah 42. Matthew gave us this because he wanted his readers to understand this Jesus is fulfillment of what the Old Testament pointed to. This is the man and this is the ministry. And the Pharisees who were rejecting him and back in verse 14 who were conspiring against him. How they might destroy him. They were up against the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and they could not see it. And there's many people that will be in our pews that cannot see it. And I believe it is our job to look to Christ ourselves, to behold Him, just as we're told in verse 18, and then to allow others to look to Him and behold Him, the man and His ministry. Christ is our only hope, right? And that's the only hope we have. Because He has done this and because He has come not to break us but to bind us and not to extinguish us but to inflame us because He has done this, we have hope. And our hope is in Christ. And we know that. And so when we get down in our ministry, when we get down in our preaching, when the emotions start weighing on us, let me encourage you, before you go to anyone else, go look at Christ who Himself endured greater temptation and trial than you will. Look to the Christ of Scripture to lift you up. 
This is not your ministry or my ministry. It's His ministry. We're just an extension of what He came to do. That man and that mission and that ministry is what we're about. And He is the one that will empower us. He is the one that will strengthen us. And He is the one that will give us grace. I hope you can do that. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word that is always encouraging and strengthening. And I pray that we will look and behold Your servant, Your Son, who You love, who You've put the Spirit on, who came to heal, who came to bind, who came to bless, who came to give the nations hope. I pray we can look to that and in looking and seeing and savoring Christ, we're lifted up and strengthened as well. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.